This episode is brought to you by Washington Wine. Download the Map My Washington Wine app. It's Map My W-A Wine and get all the Washington Wine right in your hand. Washington Wine, this is now. If your food media diet is fueled by HRN, become a monthly donor today. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch. And I'm your co-host, Valerie Lomas. And our guest this week is uh, someone with a really interesting and varied background in food. Not the same kind of career transition story that we sometimes tell, uh, but um, kind of moving around within the food space and doing some very different things and, and really interesting things. So I'm, I'm excited for this conversation. Avana Foley is the co-owner and founder of Pokes Spices. Avana, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ethan and Valerie, for having me here today. Um, tell us a little bit about your spice company. What What is it and, and how did you come to start it? Sure. So Pokes Spices was started in 2016 and our mission is to introduce the American home cook to the West African Holy Trinity. So I'm sure your question is, what is the West African Holy Trinity? Um, I say that just as the Cajuns have the Holy Trinity of of celery, onion, and bell pepper, West Africans have chili pepper, ginger, and onion. And so we wanted to introduce the American home cook to the West African flavors through that. That way they're able to incorporate it into their current meals. Oh, that's really interesting. So, um, cause I, you know, I grew up in Louisiana and I'm quite familiar with, with that in Creole and Cajun cooking, but I was unaware that, um, that there was like a similar thing in, in, um, in West African cooking. So, I mean, as Ethan mentioned, you have such a varied background and I might be jumping the gun here, but how has your background in food science helped you with your business and with the spice business in particular? That's a very good question, Valerie. So um, when I moved to the U.S. in 2006 to pursue college, um, I already knew I wanted to have a career in food. And my long-term goal was to start a company, maybe 20 years down my career, that would process West African foods in a convenient way. I didn't know that it was going to be now. Um, so when I started working in the food industry, I, I, had a, I have a master's degree in food science, but as I started working in the food industry, I realized that it was possible to start that dream in the short term longer than the long term. So I started out as a product developer. So that equipped me in the formulation piece of the spices and in understanding how to formulate products for the U.S. market. And then I pivoted to food labeling regulations that was very, very instrumental in helping me design our labels and our product labels and be compliant with the U.S. FDA regulations. And I think that has really set us apart when you look at some of the products that I usually retailed in the U.S. that are, have West African or African origin. I have to admit, I, you know, I've met people who are food scientists and I, I know the term, but I really don't have a specific sense of what it means or, or what a food scientist does exactly. Uh, could you could you tell us a little bit about <laughs> that? Like, explain it to me. 
<laughs> sure. <laughs> so usually when people hear about food science, they think about nutrition or they think about culinology. But food science is this it's an actual science that encompasses different facets of food. And so it's the application of science to make food safe, to make food edible. And so it covers food microbiology, which looks at which looks at the interactions between microbes and food, including positive microbes and negative microbes like E. coli salmonella. And then positive microbes, you're thinking about yeast for fermentation. And then there's product development. And product development has a food chemistry background. So you're looking at the chemical interactions of food to, to create another substance. And then you're looking at food packaging. So food packaging looks at how your food interacts with packaging. So food engineering, food packaging is a subset. And then you look at regulatory. So regulatory is looking at all the different regulations and how they apply to food. That also encompasses claims, all the claims that you see on labels. Regulatory um, scientists or food regulatory people will also develop your nutrition facts panel. So you have all these as quality. There is... Let me see. There's so many different aspects of food. It's broader than what people think. It's not just one aspect of it. Yeah. So do you feel like, is there an example of a way that a food scientist would look at food differently from a chef or a, a home cook? Like, do you do you see things in food that, that normal people don't see or think about certain aspects of it? <laughs> yes, definitely. So I do love to cook and I do have the science background. Um, I think that when you have a home cook, they're not thinking about the chemical interactions that are going on in the food. They might say, oh, I like the flavor of that. Or when I cook my food, this happens. But for me as a food scientist, I'm thinking about what chemical interactions are taking place. What's the, what's the, what's the end effect of those interactions? So case in point, recently I put out a reel on our Poke Spices um, Instagram page about adding um, baking soda to tomato paste when you're cooking uh, tomatoes too. And then I shared that nowadays, manufacturers are adding citric acid to tomato paste to give that bite in tomato paste. But, but at, by adding the baking soda, there's a chemical reaction taking place, which is converting the citric acid to sodium citrate, which is a salt, which removes that bite. So that's how this, the brain of a food scientist would, would think when cooking versus a, a home cook. So, so for that particular example, does that mean you would want you wouldn't want that citric acid kind of tanginess, or, uh, or you just want to be able to control it? And having that baking soda as an option to to moderate the flavor is is what you're looking for. So, for us as West Africans, we don't like the tanginess. We don't like tanginess in our foods, and so that is to help remove and to control that citric acid tanginess that comes in the tomato paste. Oh, interesting. Cool. Um, <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about a little bit more about that Holy Trinity and, and kind of the approach to West African cooking that that you're uh, kind of setting people up to take with with your spices. How I guess I guess I mean, what am I trying to ask you? You're launching an ingredient, <laughs> a kind of a classically West African ingredient or set of set of ingredients in your spices um, and marketing them to a, a, a largely non West African audience. Um, what kinds of questions do you get? What what? What are people who didn't grow up with West African food, what are they looking for when they start to cook it? Great, great question. Um, so 
the first question we we get is what what is West African seasoning or what is West African flavors? Because we've come to realize that a lot of people are not aware of what West African foods are. Maybe they may have heard of jollof rice, but still people don't know what it really entails. So there's a lot of education in explaining that a lot of the West African flavors are already present in Southern U.S. foods or Caribbean foods. If they've had those, they have had West African flavors. So just telling them that West African flavors are just a more concentrated version of what they've properly sampled here in the United States. Um, a lot of education towards that. And then also showing them that the ingredients that we have, for instance, in our seasonings are ingredients that they already have in their pantry. Um, it's just the way it's blended to give the finished flavor profile that's typical to West Africa. And I have a question. Um, you mentioned yes. that the tanginess is not like um, something that would be typical in West African cooking. Can you give us an example of like what foods or maybe even spices have that tanginess? I'm just very curious about <laughs> about all of this. <laughs> Uh, if you've had Mediterranean food or if you've even had Mexican food, there's a lot of tangy sour notes that are typically found in either stews, soups um, with additions of acids. Uh, West African foods don't tend to have acids added in there. If there's any sourness or tanginess that we have in our meals, it comes from like fermented corn or for any type of fermented uh, grain. But that is more of a subtle type of tanginess versus the sharp um sour acidity that you tend to get from like a citric acid being added or a lemon being added to food. Oh, interesting. So you're not topping things with sour cream, basically. Exactly. Okay. And so do you find that part of your business is educating people about, um, about West African cuisine or is a large part of your target market, uh, people of the diaspora and people um, of West African heritage that are already quite familiar with, with the cuisine. Valerie, to be quite honest, our target market is not the um, the those who are here who immigrated here or first generation. Our target market is those who are unfamiliar with uh, West African foods. We are blessed to have those who already know West African foods patronizing our products because it reminds them of home. And so we do do a fair share of education when it comes to West African foods. A lot of the recipes that we've put up so far um, showcase West African foods, maybe with a little twist. So. For instance, I recently shared what I called tatale waffles, and tatale waffles are a twist on a Ghanaian dish called tatale, which is a savory, savory, spicy plantain dish, which is deep fried like beignets. But I made it into a, a waffles just to Americanize it a little bit. So I do some of that education to showcase some of the flavors typical to West Africa because I believe it's important for people to become more educated about West African flavors and foods. And, and has that, are you seeing that working? Are you seeing, uh, I don't know, people who, who wouldn't otherwise have been inclined to cook West African dishes starting to do it? How, how is the, rea I guess, how has the response been so far? The, the best and highest engagements we've had on our Instagram have been when we do some of these out of the box conventional twist on West African food or showcase West African food in a very simple way. Um, somehow, I don't know with the Instagram algorithm, we're still not able to break out on having a predominantly um, West African audience engaging with our post. And so we're trying something different this next 
a couple of months to see if it will help us break out as well. So Ethan, I'm not really sure if if we're able to break out yet, but I'll, I'll keep you advice and let you know. Yeah, it's always tough, right? It's always it's always challenging to get people to cook something new, uh, whatever that means, you know, something they haven't cooked before and especially something they haven't really tasted before. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but, yeah. but a worthy effort anyway. You're 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 definitely on, in going in the right direction if you're focusing on something like really like ease of preparation because that it seems to be like where we are in the pandemic now. It's like we've we've created the sourdough starters and we've <laughs> done the from scratch baking and now we're at the throw it in a pot or throw it throw it in a sheet pan and it's <laughs> dinner. So I think. Um, I think, yeah, that's, that seems to actually be a really good angle right now. And it could be like a way, you know, to bring, like you mentioned, bring something new to like our tired, (laughs) our (laughs) tired, you know, sheet pan or one pot dinners or or crock pot dinners that are going on right now. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Um, So we did, the most recent post we did was, uh, we called it a a picaspaccio. I, I guess you call it a piece of a soup, but it was basically blanched peas blended with cucumbers and onions and garlic. And then the seasoning behind that was our melt spicy jalapeno base, just to add a different twist. So we're definitely going to this, the, the ease and simple recipes. I'd, I'd like to ask a little more about your background and, and the process of starting the company. You know, we, we talked to a lot of people on the show who um, have come to food from something totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, as you mentioned earlier, often it's, it's somebody's dream to work in food and starting a company is, uh, often the path to that dream. Um, but in your case, you were already working in food and had a real expertise. Um, so I, I'd like to hear more about that decision. How did you, uh, you know, given that you were already working in food, how did you decide to do, to do more work with food, uh, and to expand beyond that, that, uh, kind of foundation that you had in food science to, to, make and market your own products. Yeah. So I guess I have to take you a couple of years back. So I grew up, I grew up in Ghana to a dad who's a farmer. So I grew up with around food. I grew up being taught to cook, being all of that. And so the dream has always been food, like I said, but I didn't know how I was going to get into my own company. But moving here to the United States and as I was working, I noticed a gap, especially as we're doing Sometimes when we have ideation sessions in corporate, in the companies that I work for, West African flavors was missing completely from the ideation part. And so I felt like instead of complaining about the issue, why not be a solution to the problem? And for me, spices are my strong my strong uh, wheelhouse. So I decided, why not start with seasonings? Why not start with spices, something I was good at? And that's how it started, Ethan. Um, it was a leap of faith, to be quite honest, because like I said, I thought I was going to work for about 20 20 years, retire, and then start something. But I just got to a point where I felt like it was time. It was just time for West African, the West African story to be told through food. And I just took that leap of faith in 2016 and I started it. What, what was that uh, kind of moment or decision, you know, that a leap of faith is, um, it's, it's a big, it's a big deal. How did you, <laughs> how did you decide to do it? So that, that leap of faith moment came in actually in December 2015. We were having a white elephant exchange uh, at work. And from it was my first time doing a white elephant. And from what I understood, you're supposed to hand make something 
And then there'll be an exchange. And so I'm not an artsy person. I'm a science person. I figure I don't know how to make anything. So I was talking to my husband about it. And I said, the only thing I know I'm really good at and people compliment me for is my cooking. But I can't cook something and take it. But I can give my spices. So I did that. And the gentleman who got my spices later was raving. He's an American Caucasian guy. He was raving about it and how much he loved it. And I said, okay, if he loves it, he is in the mid Midwest and he loves it. We might have something here. And at the same time, like I said, frustrations and corp about not seeing West African food or being able to bring something packaged properly, which was another issue, proper packaged West African product. I was like, okay, we have something here. Why not package it properly and bring it to market so we can start telling that story? So that was the trigger to the leap of faith that happened in uh, July 2016. What um, what was the next step after that? What uh, what happened after you made the decision? So when we made the decision, one of the things that I did was to start prototyping. So started prototyping in our apartment. We lived in an apartment at that time, went through a bunch of formulation. So I bought, I went online and looked for bulk spice providers. So went online and ordered a bunch of spice ingredients. And I started prototyping a lot. And then when I was able to tweak down the formulation that I wanted, started looking for how to launch a retail product. So specifically in Texas, I discovered I needed a food manufacturing license. I also started, I didn't have to do much research on the packaging part because that's what I did on a day-to-day basis for work. So I was good on that. So I started working with my packaging um, designer on what I wanted the label to look like. I started looking for co-packers because working in the food industry, I knew that at some point I needed I needed to either do a commercial kitchen or do co-packing. And I didn't want to have that transition, especially knowing the stress we went through doing the prototyping in our apartment and sneezing all those cayenne peppers up. So when <laughs> I love that, right. I, I know that feeling just sneezing constantly because of the because of the spices. Yeah. Correct. And blending and blending all the whole grain peppers, it was it was very frustrating. So um, started looking at co-packers and then with the co-packers, started narrowing them down by M- those who had MOQs. We could MOQs at minimum order quantities. So looking at those with low MOQs that we could afford, because you have to also understand that with someone starting a business, they only have a limited amount of cash. And so your cash is going to inventory is going to marketing, is going to labels, is going to packaging. So you have to be able to smartly use the funds that you have at that point in time. Um, So did research on that, started looking for packaging companies, places I could print the labels for, uh, for our product. And so, and then the last step in the process was sending out samples. I started out sending out samples to the West African community. You may ask, why did I do the West African community? I believe that if I was going to bring something to the market, which was going to be representative of West Africa, I had to have great adaptation by the West African community. So I sent out samples and then sent out a survey. So we looked at taste. We looked at, uh, we did all the organoleptics and then also did uh, the survey or the assessment on pricing and then packaging. We got that feedback so we could tweak before we finally launched in July 2016. Wow, what a yeah, what a process. I mean, 
I guess I guess it's slightly reassuring. I, I mean, when I started my spice company, I also like had no idea what I was doing and, and stumbled through it. But you came in with a background, <laughs> and uh, I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is it's reassuring to uh, to hear that like uh, the the steps are are more or less the same, <laughs> or that yeah. I didn't screw anything up uh, too too badly. Um, <laughs> let's take a quick break, and we'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. You may have noticed that we have a whole new look. We also launched a new website that's going to make your listening easier and more enjoyable than ever before. HRN is the original food podcast network. And as we enter a new chapter in our 12-year history, I want to ask you to invest in HRN for the long haul. If you rely on this show to fuel your food media diet, become a monthly sustaining member today. Our members keep the voice of America's food movement alive and kicking. Your donations support this podcast along with 40 other shows on Heritage Radio Network. Your contribution helps give HRN the security we need to stay on the airwaves throughout the pandemic and your continued support is allowing us to reopen our studio. Plus, we like to give our regular members special treatment. So sign up to become a monthly donor and get access to our secret menu. We've gathered together exclusive discounts and offers from some of your favorite food and beverage brands. So you get to enjoy insider pricing on goods that will ship right to your door. Join our community of monthly donors and special deals will come your way throughout the summer. So can you make a gift of five or $10 a month? It'll show me and our whole team at HRN how much this podcast and food radio in general means to you. Become a monthly sustaining member today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. And we're back. You're listening to Why Food, and our guest this week is Avina Foley, founder and co-owner of Poke Spices. Um, before the break, we were talking a little bit about your process of, of starting the company. Um, I, I wanted to ask more about, about that, about any advice that you might have uh, as a food scientist and a founder um, for somebody who's thinking about starting their own company, their own food company. What are some things that that you think people often don't pay attention to or um, that they don't think are important, uh, but they really should be paying attention to from the very beginning. Oh man, Ethan, this, it, this, this is, is a big question. Really, <laughs> it, it's, it's a big question and it's conversations that we've been having, or we had at the beginning of the year on clubhouse a lot. And one of the things is people have a great idea for a product and they think that's enough to sustain a business or that's enough to start a business. More often than not, it's not. Just having a product or having an idea is not. You have to look at all the things that are involved in having and starting a business. So do you understand what the requirements are from FDA or USDA, depending on who's overseeing your product, on, on developing a product? Do you understand the food science aspect of it? Or are you able to outsource that? Do you have the financial bandwidth to sustain the business? When I started in 2016, I maxed out my credit card. And it, I can tell you it's been painful to bootstrap the business, but I'm doing it because it's a passion, it's a dream. But if you don't have that and it's just an idea and I think I'm going to make money, you will get frustrated along the way. And I think it's very important to be ready to 
to have a mentor, uh, especially if this is not your wheelhouse or you don't have that background in it. You have to have somebody who can advise you along the way without necessarily derailing you from your passion because you don't know everything. There are things that I've learned five years down the line that at this point in time, I'm shouting from the rooftops. I don't want you to go through that because it was painful to anyone who's who's ready to listen. So I think some of those are some of the things that I'm seeing young entrepreneurs feel at that will end up causing more pain than it needs to cost. Yeah, there's definitely a, a lot of uh, points for people to trip up and and um, not know the answers that they need to. Uh, are there other resources that have been valuable for you or websites or um, other information, other sources of information where people can go to try to get those questions answered? Quite honestly, Google has been my yeah. source. <laughs> so <laughs> the part of the business I'm not really good at is the financial aspect or like the data analytics. Um, thankfully, my husband, who's also the co-owner, is good at data analytics. And so I've 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 just basically given that aspect to him. But Google has been my best friend. I've done a lot of reading online, <clears throat> looked at literature, gone to website. I read a lot of magazines. So, for instance, on my desk right now, I have a food technology magazine by the IFT, Institute, Institute of Food Technology. So I'm trying to keep abreast of what's going on in the industry. So I would encourage whoever is wanting to start a business, whether you want to do seasonings, whether you want to do beverage, to start reading some of these industry trade um, magazines, read what, what are the trends, what are consumers looking for, or what are the next trends? There's always next trends by fall time. They're going to start putting out trends for 2022. Does your product fit into that? Because that's what buyers and uh, buyers are looking for for their category. So you have to start being proactive in that sense to start doing some research and due diligence. That's that's really good advice. Um, you know, if you are looking to enter this business, is you can't look at what fits now. You have to look at what will fit by the time you're on your feet and your product is out. Um, mm -hmm. So that's really good advice. And, and also, um, you know, thank you for just sharing those pointers about, you know, bringing a product to life, because I think that, you know, there's, there's definitely a, a, a big like discrepancy or, or difference between having an idea of, of wanting to create something and even having a love and passion for it, and then mm -hmm. actually being able to execute that. And I think often the emphasis is on, you know, the passion and all of that part. But, you know, you're right, like to talk about the logistics of actually being able to monetize that passion. Um, mm -hmm. Because I, I think even if, you know, even if you do have the the wherewithal to, to kind of go the distance, you don't want to do something that's going to like put you in, in a really bad place financially. And I think, you know, it, it's very wise of you to share that side also of the logistics of starting a food business. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Valerie. The, the cooking process, um, I think, is, is really interesting. I mean, you mentioned earlier that your husband gave you the advice to start the company because you were a really good cook. Uh, and I'd like to hear more about, uh, I don't know, some of the dishes that you that you cook. What are some of your specialties at home and how do you use both the spices that you produce, but then um, any mm -hmm. other West African ingredients uh, that you that um, our listeners may not be familiar with? 
Yes. So typical West African foods are heavy on, you have your carb base, whether it's rice, whether it's cassava, whether it's corn, whether it's um, any millets, right? And then you have your stews or your soups, which will often have the protein as part of it. And sometimes the vegetables are also stewed or souped, or sometimes it's on the side. So every week I am making jollof rice, which is becoming the iconic West African dish that most people tend to know first. And so jollof rice, for those who don't know, is basically rice cooked in a tomato-based stew. It's basically tomato, uh, onions fried in oil. You add your tomato paste, you add your fresh tomatoes, you let that simmer down and cook down, and you add your spices to it as well. And so you will find my spices in that base, uh, tomato base. And then once you have this tomato base cooked very well, you add your broth or you add water and you will cook your rice in there as you will cook, cook white rice, right? So that's a one pot dish that West Africans tend to eat very often with a side of protein, whether it's fish, whether it's chicken, whether it's goat or pork or what, whatever protein that they want. And sometimes people add a side of salad on there. So you typically find that here. Another dish that is a staple in our home is okra stew or okra soup. Um, I would say that the most, uh, the cousin to that would be your gumbo, your, your Louisiana gumbo. The only difference between the Louisiana gumbo and West African okra soup is that we don't do a roux which you find in the Louisiana gumbo. And also typically red palm oil is used versus the vegetable oil that is used in the Louisiana gumbo. So it tends to have more of the sliminess or the thickness that you find uh, typical to okra. And then the best version that we do is the seafood version, which my friends call the zoo okra when they come to my house because it has every type of protein in there. We typically, we eat that with uh, fermented corn dough that has been cooked into a dough. In Ghana, we call that banku, uh, B-A-N-K-U, banku. So you, it's like a scoop and a dip. So you scoop the, the, the dough and then you, use, you, you, you cut the dough and then you scoop your soup and you eat with that, with your fingers. So those are the two dishes that you tend to find. Sometimes I'll make like spaghetti and meatballs for my three-year-old, and but the, like the stew also have the spices in there. So I tend to use the cayenne-based version of our seasonings for most of these meals that I've, I've mentioned. But let's talk a little more about uh, okra and the texture of okra in particular from, from a food science perspective. <laughs> you know I, I know, I know a lot of people find that kind of slimy texture of okra to be off-putting. Mm. But as you mentioned, it's it's a it's a pretty important uh, element of a lot of West African cooking, using okra mm. to thicken soups and stews. Mm. Um, could you just talk a little more about that? What Where does that texture come from and uh, why do some people love it and some people don't? <laughs> uh, great question. So I think because for most West Africans, we grew up with the slimy nature of West uh, okra. We don't think too too much about it. Um, but for some people, it reminds them of like uh, phlegm, right? The, the phlegm that comes from your nose. It's- <laughs> oh, that makes sense. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's so fascinating. I never thought about it like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you think about it, Valerie, when you have a gumbo, you don't ex- you don't you don't have it slimy like what you find in a West African gumbo, a West African gumbo, and that's because um, tomatoes are a good source of acid, right? And acid will 
cut out, cut down or reduce the amount of, of, of the slime that you have with okra. And so, um, Ethan, to your question, even in West Africa, there are some places that don't like it as slimy as some other tribes. So like, for instance, in my mom's tribe, which in Ghana, they are known to have very good okra. They like it very slimy. Whereas when you go to my my dad's tribe or my dad's side of people, they don't like it very slimy. So theirs tend to have a lot of tomatoes in there to help cut the slime, right? So it's just more about preference and also what people grew up with. Um, but the food science of it is I have to, I haven't really dug deep into what chemical component gives it that that slime, but it's it's said to be mucilaginous, basically slimy is what it is. That's so interesting because as someone from South Louisiana who sometimes very controversially puts tomato and things like gumbo and jambalaya, um, and I never hear the end of it from some people because, you know, they're, they're the no tomato camp and then there's the we're okay with tomatoes camp. So I never quite thought about, oh, okay, well, when you do use tomato, you also use okra versus like no tomato, you use filet powder as the thickener. So I'm going to have to do a little research into this. Thank you for like pointing this out. This is making my life start to make sense. <laughs> You're welcome, Valerie. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm also so, so interested by that, the acidity, the combination of acidity and okra, because I... You know, I guess when I when I cook okra and I don't want it to be slimy, I usually cook it hot and dry. I'll like sear it on a pan or a grill, um, mm-hmm. and and that and I don't cut up the pods often. I leave them whole and cook them, and that mm-hmm. seems to dry it out. And you get a little bit of the you know a little stickiness on the seeds and things like that, which have their own wonderful kind of popping texture when you bite into them. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I hadn't thought about cooking it with acid. I guess when I've had it in some Middle Eastern or Central Asian preparations, it's usually okra stewed, slow cooked mm-hmm. in tomato sauce. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still pretty slimy, I guess, now that I think about it. I don't know. I'm just sort of rambling on okra textures. I don't know what my question <laughs> is. I just uh, I think that's a really interesting observation. And, and another thing that we're taught is when you're making okra soup, if you want it very slimy, you don't stir it. You don't stir it a lot. Because the it think about uh, foaming. If you keep stirring something too much, you're going to break up uh, some of the bonds or some of the, the the interactions there. So we're always taught don't overstir because you're going to losing that that slime. So there's many ways to reduce the slime. Of course, high heat will also it's not a protein, but it will help to break up some of the bonds as with any other thing. And so there are many ways to achieve that. But in cooking, typically people go for the acids, right? So the tomatoes or the vinegar or the lemon juice. Wow, interesting. Very cool. Um, Should we do some uh, fun rapid-fire questions before we wrap up the interview? Let's do it. (laughs) Yes. Val, you want to kick us off or should I start? Um, I will start. Um, You know, since you grew up in Ghana, what was, when you did move here, what was like the one like spice that you didn't normally use that you enjoy using? Wow. I would say <laughs> I started using a lot of bay leaf than I did in Ghana. Um, I mean, we have bay leaf in Ghana, but I wasn't using a lot back home. But now, I guess when you don't have some of the spices that you use back home, you start to ad- adapt things. So I started using them more and more and more here. 
Yeah, when you first said bay leaf, I was like, oh, that's interesting because I almost like would associate that with the the flavor profile of a lot of the foods that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned jollof rice earlier, and and as our listeners may or may not know, there's quite a bit of controversy about jollof rice <laughs> between different countries or different traditions across West Africa. Uh, I mean, maybe this isn't such a rapid fire question. I should have asked this earlier, but like, could you talk just briefly about some of those differences? What makes Ghanaian jollof rice different from Nigerian jollof rice different from any anybody else's? Oh my goodness, your listeners are going to be on fire for this one. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> so when it comes to jollof rice, um, the history is it started out in the Senegambia region, which is currently Senegal and Gambia. Um, So that's where jollof rice originated from and started moving more eastwards towards like Ghana and um, uh, Nigeria. And so the way that the Senegalese cook their jollof is different from how West Africans cook theirs. Um, Mainly the competition that has been online or the the culinary jollof wars has been between Nigerians and Ghanaians. And I don't even know why we bother. But the main difference is Ghanaians cook their jollof rice using jasmine rice. Um, and whereas the Nigerians cook this using parboiled rice, you're going to have a completely different outcome. And so when you're cooking raw rice in the tomato stew, you're going to have the chance, which is what the Ghanaians do, you're going to have the chance for the rice grains to absorb all those flavors from the tomato stew. Now, on the other hand, with the Nigerians, where they use par- they typically use parboiled rice, the rice is, has been partially cooked before adding to the tomato sauce. So you're going to have the tomato sauce more coating the um, rice versus being absorbed. And so there's going to be some flavor differences in that. And also the grains end up being different with the parboiled rice. It tends to be slightly bigger in grains versus the Thai jasmine rice, the raw Thai jasmine rice. So Ghanaians like to laugh at Nigerians and say their rice, their jollof rice tastes like you're you're swallowing pills. Um, So (laughs) that's where the jollof war starts from. (laughs) Harsh words. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I hope they don't come come for me after this episode. (laughs) Right. So how do you cook your jollof rice in that kind of classic Ghanaian style or do you have your own spin on it? Is the classic Ghanaian style. So I start off with um, uh, sweating my onions and oil. I would add my tomato paste, add my seasonings in there. Um, typically when I make jollof rice, I don't even add fresh tomatoes. Um, I would actually use a chicken stock or beef stock or some other type of stock to thin out the the, the paste and let that simmer for a while. And then you the, the goal is to make sure that you know your rice. And so for me, I tend to use Thai jasmine rice, which is what I've been cooking with. So it's a one-to-one ratio, one ratio of one-to-one ratio of the stew to the um, to the rice. That's why I don't add the tomatoes and I use stock because the amount of stock I'm adding is going to tell me how much of my stew I typically have. So if it's one cup of stew to one cup of rice, and that will give you well-cooked jollof rice. I, I love that like ratio approach to cooking. That makes uh, <laughs> makes so much sense. So flexible. <laughs> so sciencey. Yes, <laughs> can you tell our listeners where they can find your spices and where they can find you? Yes. So you can find our spices on pokespices.com. That will be P O K S S P I E S. 
Um, we also on a couple of stockists, so you can find us on Amazon. You can find us on Etty's, Bubble Goods, Flo's Grocery, Ethnic Districts, and hopefully in the future, I'll come into a store near you. Um, but with me, it's either I am on Instagram. I'm the one behind all our social media. So if you DM me, you will definitely hear from me. But during the day, I actually work for Time Incorporate. And so I tend to keep busy with that. So that's me. All right. Abna, thank you so much. Um, thanks to uh, the Red Crickets for our theme song, Blind. Thanks to Armin Spengen, our amazing sound engineer, uh, you can reach us by email, whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. You can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram at Foodie in New York. Um, and most of all, I want to thank you for joining us. Thanks for sharing your wisdom and expertise. And um, uh, best of luck with, with the business. It's, uh, it's pretty exciting. Thank you so much, Val. Thank you so much, Ethan, for having me here and for sharing your audience with me. I'm thankful. Talk to you all next week. See you next week. Bye. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.